The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is author Danielle Trussoni, author of The Fortress, A Love Story. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Danielle. It's great to be here, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Well, you've referred to, and others also have referred to your book, The Fortress, as a love story. And, uh, of course, that's part of the title, but a love story. So what kind of a love story is it? I mean, it, I'm going to let you describe that first because it's a memoir. It's a love story. It's something that uh, it, we can all connect to. Uh, so when you're talking about love story, what do you mean? That's such a good question because the subtitle, A Love Story, was um, a very important um, part of this for me. The book is about my relationship with my ex-husband, and it describes our marriage from the beginning when we met, when we were in our late 20s, um, in graduate school, to the various experiences we had um, from having a child together to moving to various places. And, you know, about halfway through our marriage, things just really started going wrong. Um, We were talking about divorce. We were considering, you know, all sorts of options. And um, one thing we decided to do, and it sounds a little bit crazy, but at the moment it seemed uh, like a solution, is we decided to move to a new country together. We moved to the south of France. Um, I had a child uh, from a previous marriage, so that child and our daughter, my husband and I's daughter, and us, the four of us, moved to a village near Montpellier, um, which those of you who know anything about the south of France, that's right near the Mediterranean, a little bit closer to Spain. And we moved, we moved there and we bought uh, a 13th century fortress, which sounds like very exotic and luxurious, but really it was, you know, one of old school arrow holes in the wall, um, you know, drafty sort of place that we made, tried to make our own, and, and we really loved that place. But even in this village and in this house um, that, for me, was, was really a, a sort of a dream come true moving there, things didn't get better, and we ended up splitting up anyway. Um, All right. So Before you go on, I want to interrupt you because I want to kind of give a – that's sort of the, the story that's unfolding. But then the, your history with each other – I mean, you were married once before, as you say, but you guys met at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, very famous, so – we have to assume right. and we know writers. more about you. Yeah. Both writers, um, you're a very well-known writer. I mean, you you know, you've, you've had bestsellers. So it's kind of this exciting couple because I think this is part of the story, isn't it? That, you know, you fell in love and it's all this great stuff, but how well did you really know each other? And I think this well, happens to a lot. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, it was a whirlwind 
romance. You know, when you meet someone and it's just like, okay, there you are. I've been waiting for you my whole life. (laughs) And it was one of those moments um, where we just sort of tumbled into each other's arms and thought, okay, this is is it. We're not, you know, nothing's going to get better than that. Um, We married very quickly. Uh, I got pregnant very quickly with our daughter. Um, Within a year, I was pregnant and living. He was originally from Bulgaria, so Eastern Europe. Within a year, I was pregnant and living in Bulgaria with him and, you know, my son from my previous marriage, who was only two years old at the time and really um, grew up with, uh, you know, this, my, um, Nikolai is the name of my ex-husband, um, as his stepfather and, and his father figure. And, you know, everything happened very fast. And, you know, part of the excitement of that is, is you're right. It's who we are. It's, um, we're both writers. We love doing things a little bit dramatically, I suppose. Um, our profession is creating stories and, uh, and characters and finding exotic locations. And so, right, all of that fed into um, our marriage. And, you know, really what this book is about, other than the sort of narrative that I just told you about moving to France and buying this house, trying to make it work, is that um, those illusions while and those ideas, while, you know, while they do work very well in, in a novel, in real life, don't work so well. <laughs> and we found ourselves at odds with, with our expectations. So you became characters in your own book or your own books, I guess. I guess in so. a way, and now, right? Literally. I mean, it sounds, yeah. And now that's now yeah. that's literally and, true with the fortress, um, because it's, it's the stories I've written this memoir um, about us, precisely because of that. You know, what do what do we expect? And it's not just about writers, right? Or you know, someone who's like me. I think a lot of people that I know, um, you know, especially women, have these dreams and ideas about what their marriage is going to be like, and they go into it, you know, with. I don't know, I don't want to say their eyes closed, but, you know, with a little bit of a pink tint um, to the world. And, you know, time often disabuses us of of those illusions. Well, I think one of the things that you say uh, or that you mention is, I mean, you do, all of us, I think you go into a relationship, whether a long-term relationship or a marriage with certain expectations and this is the way it should be or, and it's difficult to let go of those expectations when things aren't working out well. I think you talk a lot about that. Uh, yeah, definitely. And that's I mean, part the of book, the story. Yeah. The, the book is really, um, you know, underneath all of these, you know, sort of events that happened to me, it's about, I had a sort of tenacity about that vision. Um, I'm someone who very much has created my own life. Um, I come from a family um, in the Midwest that I was the only person who was interested in the arts or in writing. I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, You know, there was a certain level of tenacity. Sorry about the sirens. Um, I'm in New York City. We get that here. Um, I know. I'm in New York City, too. Oh, you are. Oh, okay. So yeah. you probably hear the same siren. Yeah. Um, probably downstairs, but anyway, go on. Probably downstairs. Sorry about that. Yeah. So there's, there was a certain level of tenacity um, in my life about creating who I wanted to be, and my marriage fit right into that. I was very unwilling to let go of the, the sort of perfect idea I had in my mind of what I wanted us to look like as a couple. And um, that inflexibility really just caused a lot of damage, I, I think. And so anyway, I, I, I do see that as a trend, not a trend, or as a tendency with a lot of my female friends. You know, they, they want um, this, this, and this in their marriage, and they're not willing 
to change their story halfway and things end. You know, Danielle, one of the things that stands out in your story, Nikolai, with your husband or your ex-husband, is that he came from a different culture, a different country, Bulgaria, what, the capital, Sofia. And so you had never really been or you hadn't been to his to his country with him before. And so all of this, this I mean, there's a lot of cultural differences besides who he really was and some of the untruths that he had told you about him and his family. Um, unfortunately, I know uh, today I know quite a few women who find themselves in that position, who have married oh, really? people. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's because we're, I don't know, we're more of a global group of people. We, you know, we tend to, we have the opportunities to marry people who are from different countries, different cultures, different, and it, the expectations that we have don't quite fit into uh, maybe not just individually, but also culturally. But maybe you could talk about that because yeah, no, once you I, got to his, I think, yeah, yeah, I think that that's really an interesting point because um, you know I was 27 years old when I met him. I had never been to Bulgaria or Eastern Europe at all. I had traveled quite a bit to other places, but I had no conception of where I was going. Other, I relied completely on his his description. Of, of where we would be going when we went to his home country. Um, and when I got there, it was completely different than anything I had imagined. And his life, um, he had given me one picture of how his life was, and, and it wasn't correct. Um, and uh, I got pregnant, you know, I found out I was pregnant the very first month uh, we were in in Bulgaria. And, you know, everything just sort of, fell on top of me. Um, there's a scene in the book. Uh, so I, I, in my fourth month of pregnancy, um, I got sick and I was unable to carry uh, the baby in a normal way. When I would walk or when I would move, I would go into labor. So I had to go to the hospital in, in Sofia and I was on bed rest for the remainder of my pregnancy. And the hospital, the public hospitals in Bulgaria are nothing like to imagine a hospital to be like here. This hospital was called Maichindam. It was the maternity hospital. You know, it was completely um, without funding, cracks in some of the windows, no toilet seats, no hot water. Um, you know, Nikolai would bring me food every day from outside, you know, from, from home so I could eat. I mean, it was really um, an eye-opener. We, I think we always tend to think that having another cultural experience is going to be amazing and enriching, and I found myself very much um, like I was in a Paul Bowles novel <laughs> where I was, like, in another place, and I was like, oh, my gosh, how did I get here, and why did this happen <laughs> this way, and who is this man, by the way, <laughs> that brought me here, and... and um, so it was, uh, you know, a big awakening um, for a young so you were in to a, go through. For, yeah, I mean, you're in one of the most vulnerable positions you can be in because you're talking about right. when you didn't really get specific about, okay, your husband had told you one thing about himself. I want to get into what he told you and what was the reality. Right. That's And then you're pregnant, and then the pregnancy is not a, quote, normal pregnancy. So here right. you are in a, a really run-down, broken-down hospital that uh, I, I've been in those kinds of hospitals, yeah, not what your expectation was. So you grow up really quickly, I imagine. Um, yeah, so, and, and, yeah, and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of 
although on the surface I rolled with it, you know, I was, I was someone who was like, okay, you know, I still love this guy. I get that maybe there's differences in our cultures and there's differences in what I expected. I'm just going to go with it. I, you know, I didn't, I'm not, I didn't feel entitled. You know what I'm saying? I didn't feel entitled to have uh, anything better because I saw so many people um, living in Bulgaria who went through the same thing, right? They, they're all living that way. Um, but at the same time, um, a layer of distrust grew underneath everything between he and I. I didn't quite trust him again after that. Nevertheless, and I think this happens um, with a lot of relationships, especially when you love someone and you're trying to make it work, I, I wasn't going to give up after that point. I was going, I had gotten myself in that far, you know, and the idea was, okay, I can bail now or I can just throw myself the rest of the way in and make this work. So it's a challenge. I mean, you're obviously a person, it sounds like to me, and obviously that you are somebody who does like a challenge. So here you are. This is probably yeah, the most, I, yeah, you're going to stick with it. Yeah, I guess so. And, or, you know, I like a big payoff too, right? You know, in my mind, it was, I don't want to be someone who's been divorced twice. I want to have my children now, you know, I have I had a daughter with this man. I want my children to grow up in a stable home. Because we were going to move back to the States. We weren't planning to stay in Bulgaria, you know, the rest of our life. Um, and I want to have a marriage. I want to be someone who looks back when I'm 80 and be with a guy who knew me when I was 27. Right? Were the, and were the signs the, there? Were the signs there and you missed them? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, okay, oh, because, yes, yeah. definitely. And so, yeah, <laughs> sure. so what were some of the signs? Well, there's a scene in my book. Um, so... You know, while the book is called The Fortress, not all of it is set in this medieval fortress. There's other parts, as I mentioned, in Bulgaria. But there's one scene in Iowa City where I walked into our uh, home. We were living together. And um, I found him reading all of my journals. Um, I had a, a suitcase full of journals that I had been keeping since I was about 16, and I'm a writer, so, you know, it was my workbook. It was my, where I tried out ideas, where I wrote silly things, where I wrote poetry, everything. And he had asked me previously, can I read those? And I said, no, those are private. Please don't touch those. And I had, you know, stashed them away in a closet. Well, I came home early one day. You know, I was supposed to be in class, and the class was canceled. I came home, and he was sitting in the living room with all the journals spread out around him. Um, and he acted in that moment as if he was doing nothing wrong. He said, oh, you never told me I couldn't read these. And I said, yes, I did. And he said, oh, but you didn't mean it. You didn't really mean that. You want us to know everything about each other. And that was a shocking moment. I was so upset and hurt. Um, and that was a moment where, looking back, I should have known that I couldn't trust this yeah. person, right? Yeah. And I should have trusted my instincts, which were, okay, um, you know, time to walk away. Why do you think we do that? You know, you mentioned women and you mentioned something about pink. I forgot what you said, but kind of the pink perspective. Like tinted glasses. Yeah, Yeah, tinted glasses. Our rosy rosy glasses. Yeah. And so why, and I think this does happen, especially in uh, love stories, uh, as we're talking about, but 
like, why don't we trust our instincts? Why didn't you trust your instincts? That what did you have to? That is a big question. Yeah. It's a big question. And I talk with my friend, you know, I have a, a, a lot of um, good female friends who we talk about this, like, why, is, especially in our 20s, right? You know, as we get older now, I, I understand very well <laughs> what an instinct <laughs> moment is like in my life, right? And I do trust that those feelings much more. But in your 20s, I think you're still not sure about life. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I came from, I came from a family that was a little unstable. Um, you know, there was a divorce in my family. I didn't have wonderful um, role models or guidance about what was good and what was bad in relationships. And, you know, I'm not blaming this on my parents, but I'm saying that we, what we take from the people in our lives, what we take from our parents or aunts and uncles that we see or family friends that we see having a good marriage or a good relationship is what is, it creates the benchmark of what's normal in your life. And for me, I had, you know, my first book is a memoir called um, Falling Through the Earth. And that book is about my relationship with my father who was a Vietnam vet. And he was very unstable. He had PTSD after the war. Um, Our family was really, um, you know, there was, some craziness going on there. So my, you know, my radar was, was off. Um, and I just didn't know how to make good decisions. You know, so I didn't make them. I made bad, pretty bad decisions. Um, and the person um, that I usually messed over was myself. <laughs> you know, like I was, yeah. always, uh, I was always doubting my own instincts and I was always making sure that other people were happy and okay before myself. So that was the sort of the, that's how you got into or be, the marriage with Nikolai, um, making poor choices, I guess, well, his, and uh, continuing to make poor choices. So what happened as the story unravels uh, in, in, your, in your memoir, how does his personality unravel? How do you begin to, I mean, you mentioned uh, just in the very beginning, actually, before you actually got married, um, him invading your privacy, but then you get to, you get to Europe you, you know, are living in this, you're living in, in France, uh, that what happens? Then what, how does you be, how, when do you really begin to feel this is really not working out? This is not something I can accept anymore. Right. So after Bulgaria, we spent three years in Bulgaria and then we went back to the States for about four years um, because he got into a graduate school. Um, and went to another, got an MFA. And so during that period of time, I started, my career really started taking off. I published, um, you know, a book and then I sold another book for quite a bit of money. And we had a cushion, we had enough money that we could actually um, go back to Europe and go to France. And because we're both, you know, this is another issue that I think a lot of women, especially as women become more successful financially, and in the work, work world and in, you know, sort of gain confidence in themselves as independent um, people, I, I was making more than he was. I had, uh, you know, more accolades and I was just doing better in my career. And this caused a whole bunch of problems that I hadn't foreseen. Um, you know, while on the surface it was very much like, oh, I'm you know, really proud of you and I'm really supportive. Underneath it was a lot of, there was a lot of jealousy and there was a lot of undermining of my ability to work, a lot of, a lot of guilt, um, you know, was, I felt a lot of guilt about, you know, the fact that 
why am I doing better? And, and he's a writer too, but his books aren't working in the same way. So that played into it quite a bit, um, among other things. You know, who knows? You can't really pick out one thing that pushes a relationship to go bad. So that's at the point when we went to the south of France. And oh, when we were there, you know, um, it just sort of was like, you know, putting a magnifying glass in the sun and, you know, the piece of glass that you're aiming the, the laser at just bursts into flames because we were, it was concentrating everything that had been wrong into one isolated location. We were there without family and friends. Neither of us spoke French. Um, we really were starting over and hoping to focus just on ourselves, but that focus on ourselves just created all the more problems. We ended up living in different parts of the house. Um, we ended up having all sorts of problems. <laughs> and, and we just, you know, by the end, we, we really, we broke up, we sold the house, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Um, but the reason, so in the, fort- in the reason I wrote the book after all of this is really not so much to describe the drama of that breakup, although that is in this book for sure. Um, for me, what brought me to the story was my need to share the insights uh, that I had about myself and about our relationship as it was disintegrating. Because I think that we learn a lot about the people we love or the people we've spent you know, a lot of time with. I mean, he and I were together for 10 years, in those moments of stress when, um, you know, your personality and his personality, they just come out and you really see what you're dealing with. And you can learn a lot. That's a moment, I think, I mean, for me anyway, that was probably this break um, was probably the, the moment in my life where I learned the most about myself, what I want, um, what I can't tolerate anymore. Um, I think many of us, I mean, so many people I know go through life not knowing just where their level of tolerance stops and they'll take, you know, so much, so much, so much, and then they'll they'll just break. Um, I think that's true, Danielle. I think the other piece is, maybe this is obvious, I guess, but not only were you sort of learning about yourself in this way, but you were doing it, and I just want to reiterate, in the context of a foreign country with no supports, I mean, it may have been very different, let's say, if you had been in the United States and you had your girlfriends or your colleagues sort of uh, supporting you. Uh, it may have been less painful, maybe not. But this way, I mean, you really were in a position where you were isolated and really, it seems to me, have to turn inward to really understand yourself and to and him at the same time. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, that played into it in a huge way. Um, we were in this village and the people that we did, you know, we were there for almost four years. So by that point, we had made some friends, but they were new friends. Um, they were generally speaking, uh, you know, not as close, not very close to to me, to me, anyway, I didn't have many close friends there. All of my close friends were back in the States. Um, my family was in the States. Uh, my mom uh, and my stepfather ended up coming over to France to help me because it did get very... I, I, when I stopped eating. I stopped, you know, all sorts of things happened. Um, I started to get sick because I was anemic by the end. Um, and I really needed some help uh, to sort through everything. What so, would you say was... What, 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 in terms of insights, in terms of what you learned about 
about yourself and you don't have to sort of give away the candy store because you want people to go out and buy the book. Um, but like, what would you say were some of the a couple of the biggest things that you learned about yourself. I mean, obviously, so that you're not going to make the same kind of, hopefully, or haven't made the same kinds of choices that you made in marrying and staying with Nikolai. Right. Well, so the biggest thing, I mean, there's a couple. As I mentioned earlier, knowing your tolerance level, right? Setting boundaries, knowing what you can and can't accept in a relationship emotionally, um, there was a lot of emotional sort of manipulation going on with me. Um, I, I'm very prone to feeling bad and guilty. You know, I felt sorry for him a lot of the time because he had come from sort of um, impoverished childhood in a you know ex-communist country. Um, you know, basically just defining what your boundaries are with someone and what you can and can't take. The second one, and I think that this one is equally important, is separating and being very clear about your money. Um, With him, everything was always mixed up, and I was the primary breadwinner. I was um, also, because, um, you know, this is often how it just goes for women, I was also the primary caregiver. So I was doing, you know... All, two, two Everything. jobs, essentially. Yeah, and two jobs. Um, while he was off being an artist but not able to sell anything or, you know, not be able to, to work effectively at the end. Um, and so that was really tough. I had backed myself into a corner because I wasn't smart enough or strong enough to just say, okay, this is mine, you know, this is what I'm earning, this is mine, and this is what you're earning, this is yours, or have some sort of agreement in advance um, well, if you so felt sorry for him, if you felt sorry for him because of the background that he came from and you felt guilty, that's sort of, a, I, I guess, a formula for, as you say, not being able to separate the money, not being able to say, I am the breadwinner, I do make more money than you are, and this money goes in, you know, this is my money. And um, I, I mean, I think this is a common theme that also I think many women today have, and many women do make more than their spouses or their partners, and that's a huge issue. Uh, and it's being a huge able to issue that yeah. we're afraid to talk about. Um, we're afraid I'm to really, talk about. I'm, I'm I'm really interested in the taboo we have around talking about money, um, and why we feel that it's it's not something we can talk about, because honestly, once that's cleared up. You have so much more space to um, communicate on an emotional level, right? I think that that's a little beep in the background of relationships that can be eliminated with some, you know, clear talking and you know, some maybe some paperwork even. Um, I'm all for people being very, you know, clear, having separate accounts and that sort of thing. So. Um, you know, yeah, I agree with you. I think that this is a huge issue for women now. We're in a transitional moment where women are, um, for the first time in history, making, um, you know, their own money and having the power to create their own lives. And we have to, to really protect ourselves. We have to accept those boundaries, I think. as you, you know, I think you mentioned the word boundaries. You know, those are the, the monetary boundaries, physical boundaries, and that impacts on the emotional boundaries. And it's okay to have these kinds of boundaries instead of, but we're sort of, as you, we are in a transition period, still thinking about the, the Cinderella stuff and the Cinderella wedding, right. and that gets all confused with what, really what the reality is. And um, Right, right. Yeah. And what is attractive and what's not attractive and what's feminine and what's not, you know, all of these all of these ideas and issues and 
um, you know, uh, expectations are, are just sort of blended into so many relationships that we have with, you know, with men. And it's, for me, it's been, you know, a, a 20-year learning experience <laughs> trying to sort these things out. And, you know, I hope to do so in the, you know, that was my goal of writing The Fortress is, is I wanted to find a way to write my story, but also to talk about these very things. And I hope that other women can relate to them. Well, I think you've done that. And I think, you know, uh, every listeners, you've got to go out and get the book, read the book. Um, we have like about a minute left. The Fortress, a love story, Danielle Trussoni. And you can buy your book on Amazon bookstores everywhere. But also, Danielle, where can we, uh, what websites or website can we go to yeah, to find so out? I would, yeah. I would love, you know, I have a free excerpt. I have some excerpts of the book on my website. So if you want to just give it a try first, um, my website is my, you know, it's my name, www.danielle, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E, Trussoni, T-R-U-S-S-O-N-I.com. And I'd love to hear from people. If, if you read the book, I'd love to know what you think about it. Yeah, because we've touched on some of the issues today, but there's lots more to talk oh, about. So once, much more. Yeah, <laughs> once you've read the book, exactly. And I guess lastly, I hope you've made some good choices since then, obviously. I I'm, have. I'm assuming I'm that you good have. choices now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great. Well, it's been great talking to you today. I'm gonna, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, okay, your thank social. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. Um, I'm your social worker with a microphone, and don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Jane Scott, MD, neonatologist and author of The Confident Parent, a pediatrician's guide to caring for your little one without losing your joy, your mind, or yourself. 
Well, after living in and raising her kids on four continents, Dr. Jane Scott knows that every country has its own tried and true traditions with regard to child-rearing methods that work. Uh, She notes in her book that many American parents struggle with the culturally imposed pressure to be the perfect parent. Uh, Dr. Scott breaks down the assumptions about what good parenting entails by exploring the ways in which children succeed and thrive around the world, giving parents new tools to help them follow their instincts and gain fresh new perspectives. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Scott. Thank you, Catherine. It's very nice to be here. Great to have you. Your your uh, your book did resonate. Uh, well, I, I have a grandson, a brand a new grandson. So everything that you sort of were talking about in the book was like, oh my God, this is so true. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm also a mother of three children. So let's talk about that. The premise of your book, and I think this is so the cultural differences that you bring up in terms of parenting. There's no one right way. We as Americans kind of I think think that there is one right way, as you say, with the certain things you have to do to be the perfect parent, and that's not really true. So uh, where do we start? Well, I, I think let's, let's start right there. Um, my, my belief is, as you say, that uh, there's, there's many, many ways to parent children successfully. There's not a perfect uh, particular recipe. And uh, as you said, I've, I've lived in many different cultures, and I really have recognized that there is no such thing. It, it's not even achievable to be the perfect parent. So let's start there. And the other thing I feel very strongly, it's, it's important to tell people uh, in our country, here in America, that, you know, it you, you really can be a very good parent and you're probably an extremely good parent if you're listening here today because you're trying to learn about it. You've probably been reading a number of parent books and just because you've been doing that tells me right there and then you're a great parent. Okay, so what I like to do is to suggest that we embrace the things that we do well. That, that's usually good enough. Um, you know, I think that what I've noticed, um, spending a lot of time with, with young and middle-aged parents, there seems to be a lot of pressure from outside. And I'm going to encourage you all to recognize this is your turn. It's not the other person's turn. It's not even other members of your family's turn. It's your turn. Be confident with your decisions. Feel good about making decisions and living with them. You really don't have to be upset or on anybody else's frame of reference. It's yours. Can we break it down a little bit because we're talking about the perfect parenting? And I think when, as you're describing it, you know, after you had two or three kids, or in your case, you've had four, I've had three, um, you do gain a certain amount of confidence because you sort of, you know, you have something to look back on and uh, you get more confident in your choices. But that first kid that you have, and you have, I think, in our culture, I have to say, pediatricians, pediatricians. sort of have a framework for what you are supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. And I think parent, and there's a competitive aspect also. That's another part Mm -hmm. of it amongst Mm -hmm. amongst parents who has the smartest, the brightest. And when are you walking? And do you, let's break it down into some of the issues that involve the perfect, what we consider the perfect parenting and how they really don't necessarily fit into being a good parent. Yes. Um, perfect. That's a great place to start. Yeah. My, 
the one thing that I that uh, comes up as you're talking about trying to be the perfect parent, trying to give your child the advantage, and what do you have to do? And I think what I've noticed is that people feel very strongly that they have to purchase a lot of goods, you know, all of the best toys and have the best nursery, and and those are the types of things that are going to help to give the baby the advantage. And what I'd like to to share with the audience is that, truthfully, the things that develop the human baby's brain are actually the five senses, sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell, okay? We don't have to buy those. We got those right with us. Uh, the minute you pick up that, that little baby in your loving arms or, or the baby's put on your chest when the baby's first born, they are right there in position to have those senses stimulated. It's that easy, okay? Um, a toy doesn't actually provide that. Uh, say we talk about, you know, a rattle. A rattle is often made of plastic. It has no smell. It has no taste. It has no changes of color. It's whatever color you, tr- you purchase. Uh, yes, they can see it, uh, but, uh, and sometimes they can hear it if it's actually actively being shaken. Um, but it doesn't have all the characteristics that you, the human being, have for your baby. So right there... You don't have to spend a lot of money to give your baby that advantage. It's just you and baby or dad and baby or your partner or caretaker and baby. They provide that. The other thing that is the huge ingredient to have a smart child is providing opportunities for movement. That means holding your baby, putting them down on tummy time and playing with them, etc. Those are the things, and none of them cost money, Okay, and they only take a little time that will actually enrich your baby's brain. And what we tend to do is I see a lot of uh, young mothers or dads or whoever the person is taking care of the baby uh, is doing actually the opposite. Uh, they don't put them down. They stop it. But you mentioned this in other cultures. They do this too, depending on the culture. They strap them into everything, every, absolutely everything. I see these babies strapped into, if they're feeding them, they're strapped into their, their high chairs. They're strapped into the, the carriages. They're strapped in. They, they always have a strap on them, <laughs> uh, which it's doesn't. true. Yeah. It, it, it's very true. And the reason for that is that uh, parents are trying to keep their babies safe. Okay, that's the number one thing. I've had parents tell me, you know, as long as I have keep this baby safe and alive, the other things that you're talking to me about, getting flat head, perhaps having delayed milestones, I'll deal with that. I have a live baby. And what I want to say to, to your audience is you don't have to pick. You can have both. You absolutely can have both, but it is because parents are so scared that they're going to allow that baby to get hurt, and it's seen much more strongly in your Western cultures than it is in your third world countries where, you know, I started my life in in Kenya, and in those situations, you know, mom, mom held the baby basically a lot of the time, or the village. The village helped out so that mom could have a break. In fact, 
even if uh, necessary, another member of the tribe would actually nurse the babies. They were all, uh, you know, breastfeeding moms. And so that emphasis of, you know, you are the only person who can provide care for your child, you know, is, is, uh, is a very heavy responsibility for parents to have to deal with. Yeah, I think the other thing you this this risk aversive, I think you call it that safety thing is such an issue from putting thing you know afraid afraid for the baby to stand up and as they're pulling themselves to try to walk, for instance, that you have every coffee table has a padding on it or the corners yes. are padded or everything is padded, so the child never really learns on their own, or I mean, they eventually do, but, uh, you know, you have to sometimes fall, and you have to hit your head, and you have to, I'm not talking about major accidents, but uh, to learn to be able to navigate their own environment, and I think we're really caught up in that safety risk version kind of uh, climate, I guess you would call it. Oh. You're, you're, you're yeah. in, so right, and yeah. it's actually part of the learning process, it's part of the neural connections that the baby is making, so just in simple layman language, it's how that baby's brain develops, and there has to be a little bit of not just being totally supported uh, you know, held in a car seat, the baby does need to have a little reasonable opportunity of risk. And as you say, nobody in their right mind is suggesting that you just leave your baby to, you know, roll off the bed or something, you know, very serious. We're talking about small risk, but the opportunity for the baby to navigate through that and learn and gain those skills. What about attachment parenting? What is that? Can you tell what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Attachment parenting is is the concept, you know, that the the description um, suggests, which is the baby is virtually attached to the parent all the time. And the thing that I have concerns with uh, is that there's several things that happen here. Definitely, I want good bonding with the parent. You as the parent are the most important people in your baby's life. There is no doubt in my mind that that needs to be nurtured and maintained. However, one, we do not live in caves in the dirt with, you know, no supermarkets and no jobs and cars and things. Our lifestyle is so incredibly different that what they might have done at that time is, is very difficult to just, you know, move attachment pairing into our lifestyles. And the other thing is that most of those people in those, you know, many, many, many years ago when the human uh, was developing, uh, they, they lived in groups. And so, again, the group added the help that's necessary. It wasn't just one person usually just constantly holding that baby, sleeping with that baby, and and doing with that baby. That really didn't happen, number one. And two, our lifestyles just are not geared to do that. How, How could we ever run a home or do a job or anything else? And then the other part of this that I think is... Uh, very important for parents to hear is that you, you're then giving virtually no opportunity for your child to feel secure in anybody else's um, uh, support. 
so they, then you have the child who really has a hard time. They can't go to school because they've never been separated from the parent. Or the parent can never go and, you know, have a date night, which I really support. Or they can't go and, you know, feel like a, a normal human being and, and get their hair cut and get their nails done and things like that. So it's not great for the parent who feels 100% responsible. It's sending a message to the child that you are the only person who can actually provide security for, for that child, which I think is, a, is again, a, a not a good message. Um, and then you have the problem that this poor child feels incredibly unsafe when they have to start going out and, you know, going to school and doing other, other activities. So in terms of other cultures, for instance, can we give some like, you know, back like the differences? I know that Danish parenting has become, I don't know, popular, but you read, I think you mentioned it in your book. And I think there's a there's a book about Danish parenting that's come out that the Danes sort of have. I don't know if they have. We're gonna, we don't want to call it perfect parenting, but they do more of the kinds of things that you've been talking about in, in terms of, of raising their children. Um yeah, let's talk about another another thing that I think is very important lesson to learn from people like the Dutch and the Danes and the, the Finns. Uh, they actually had um, certainly the, I, I've read a study about the Finnish parents. So let's talk about them. These uh, the Finnish children back in the fifties were very middle of the road with their academic successes, and today they're almost on the top of the pile, okay? They have become very, very successful academically. And it's real interesting to me how they achieved that. They achieved it by adding more playtime, and it was free playtime, to their school days. So they entered the children into school later, so they had more time to spend, you know, learning about who they were and becoming creative and, and this, that, and the next thing. And then they go to school closer to seven, and then their school day is broken up where their school classes never go on beyond about 45 minutes. And then they get 15 minutes, Catherine, to actually go. And they are not you know, put into a very supervised situation. They go out on the playground. It doesn't matter what the weather is. You know, it can be very cold. They just go out and they behave as children. You know, they play and they have fun. And what what was noticeable in the observations is when they came back to the class to start their next class, they were invigorated. You know, they, 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 the blood flow was going. They were happy. They were laughing. They were ready to sit down and do another class rather than, oh, my gosh, you know, how can I do yet another hour of study as the new teacher comes in? And with that, their academic success is just, you know, off the wall, off the wall. Well, doc, you know, Dr. Scott, it's really kind of disturbing because it seems to me we're doing exactly the opposite, aren't we? I mean, we're heading in a totally different direction. We start yes. not when we send kids to daycare. Some of the daycare, by the time the kids are two or three, let's say, it really becomes like preschool. They are in school. It's all this, you know. They're not doing as you suggested, or as the as the uh, the Finns are doing. Uh, they are studying at age two and three, and 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 regimented, and all of those kinds of things. So, um, I, you know, I don't. That has to do with our. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is <laughs> yeah, a lot of things, we, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And and the, the problem with this is that you we're not giving the ch- the children the chance to learn how to problem solve uh, problem solve themselves. There's so much to learn in free play. Now, I'm not saying that the children aren't supervised at some sort of a distance, so that you know there's an adult looking on there, but they're not intervening. They're not having uh, basically adult supervised learning sessions all the time. The children are learning to, through their play, to become creative, problem solve, work with other children. Okay, work with other children and and figure out how to get along with other children to share. And these are tremendous skills for later life and especially, you know, once they do go to school and become in a more structured environment, they're much more capable of dealing with disappointments and dealing with being with other children and sharing and so forth. So I I wish uh, that people would look and learn from uh, other cultural models, especially when they've been successful. Well, how do we get... As a culture, how do we get our how do parents as well as uh, teachers, curriculum, all of that to, to do that, to see that, to make changes? There's still that sort of, I don't know, it's an underlying, well, if, if I'm, my kid doesn't, if I don't take them to every museum that they should be going to by the age of four, I have to get them to do, you know, it's all this competitive stuff. They're not going to be able to get into a good college. And, and this is, right. they're worried <laughs> at age five, you know, they're worried yeah. that that's not going to happen. It, it, uh, it is the word. It is the word out there that's going to take education, and I hope some of your audience will be open to read my book um, because we we've had historical studies <laughs> in different cultures that can say, look, you know, this works. We don't have to feel like we have to reinvent the whole wheel. Um, and the truth is, uh, I, I read another study very recently that actually. Uh, compared uh, a bunch uh, of Western countries. And I was so sad to hear that the American parents are the most unhappy out of 25 Western countries that were evaluated. And it was like, that. this is so sad. We, we, we need to attend to this. We need to sit up and see what's going on. And what they thought was a very uh, large part of it was that uh, we, in fact, have the least support for parents when they have a child, financially, emotionally, and everything else. Uh, we are out there with only one other country, Papua New Guinea. Every other country provides more support for the family when they uh, have a new one in their home. So Why do you think that is? I think it's that work ethic of, you know, we have to produce, we have to produce, um, we, we have to provide. And I think if we can start to make inroads that really providing the way uh, from the uh, – we're following the, the strong marketing, okay? They're, they're being very effective, and they're persuading parents that they need all these very expensive things. Well, how do you get that? You've got to work. You've got to get that income to come in. So I think first and foremost, we need to start uh, pushing back on this incredibly effective marketing that parents have to 
purchase all these different things. It isn't valuable to send your three-year-old to Mandarin classes. It just simply isn't, okay? Um, the brain is not really into that particular mindset. The brain is actually forming all those neural connections so that by the time they're ready for school, however, whatever age that is, it certainly has to be over five, um, so these neural connections need to be set up not with that type of um, activity. It needs to be more one-on-one fun stuff with parents. It needs to be group activities with other children and much more free, much more free. It's going to develop the child more successfully. Well, just getting to your point, um, I had my grand son here and he was playing he's a baby uh, under a year old and uh, has the toys some of the toys that you're describing but I, I pulled a, a page out of a magazine and uh, crinkled up the paper and he started to, he had more fun with that than any of the toys that he was playing with because uh, you could be a lot more creative with you know tearing yeah. the paper yeah exactly so it's exactly what you're talking about um and uh, it, it's very true i mean it's um you know, you could get rid of half of all the toys that he has and just give he him the base. Very happy. Uh, very I mean, happy. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, uh, and I think you saw in my book uh, at one time in my life when my two um, oldest children were very, very young. I actually lived in the desert in South Africa. I was a hundred miles away from the nearest small town to purchase, you know, any groceries or anything else. I was right out there and with no electricity, no running water, and my children played in and out of a little galvanized iron bucket, and they had so much fun, and they took their little dinky cars and, you know, ran them through the sand that we lived on, and, you know, they, they played uh, very happily with with tin cans and little stones and, and uh, little twigs and things, and they had a marvelous time, and believe me, uh, they were not uh, behind the other children at all. They, they were so creative and are probably uh, as good a people in an emergency as, as I have ever come across, and I think it's that, that opportunity for the brain to actually go through the motions of all these different things and have to think and create and, and solve. And uh, are we, should I ask what, because you had some time in between them when they were playing with their little toys in the, in the, in the sand, out in the, uh, you know, outside of civilization, I guess, but uh, <laughs> did one turn out to be an artist and another an engineer or how did it work out? Um, full of, of uh, wonderful thoughts, uh, love, uh, loves to prototype, uh, this sort of thing. Um, you know, sort of thinking out of the box is, is absolutely my eldest child's um, dream life, thinking out of the box, creating things that have never been created before. Um, the, the younger of the two, wonderful um, uh, communication skills, Wonderful communication skills, great with people. Um, again, you know, very good in any type of uh, unknown situation can come up with a great way to solve a problem. Um, it, it's really, really uh, exciting to watch that sort of development. So it really does work, and I, I guess, uh, and so I think it's really important for listeners to to get your book, to read your book, The Confident Parent. I'm going to 
meant, you know, the whole title again, A Pediatrician's Guide to Caring for Your Little One Without Losing Your Joy, Your Mind, or Yourself. Um, Dr. Scott, where can, we can buy the book, Amazon, uh, and yes. uh, book, bookstores everywhere, but uh, also tell us the website, your website, uh, where we can go to, to learn more about the book and what you do. And, um, sure. Yeah. Um, the, the website's name is theconfidentparentbook.com. Uh, we have a, a presence on Facebook, so I'd love them to go there too. But in the, uh, on the website, they'll be able to see all the outlets where the book can be sold. Plus, I should, should let them know it's come out not only in the paperback, but it's also come out in e-books and as an audio book. Right. Uh, p- people are busy, so I think audio is sometimes, you know, a, a little easier. The for easiest them. way to do it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we have to say goodbye there. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and we've been talking to Dr. Jane Scott. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 